This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Eddie DeBartolo, and you're listening to The Eye Test for Two with Clark Judge and Ira Kaufman. Welcome to another edition of the Eye Test for Two. I'm Clark Judge. I'm Ira Kaufman. And we are both Hall of Fame voters, joined by our Hall of Fame producer, Ian Glendon. Now, because we're Hall of Fame voters, and this is a Hall of Fame theme show orchestrated by a Hall of Fame producer, I want to touch on, well, what else? A Hall of Fame theme that's actually not involved with football, although occasionally it is, but really not involved with football. And that's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now this year's class is gonna be announced tomorrow, that's Wednesday. And Ira, I know you're a rock and roll fan, I know that, because you and I have communicated on this before. But I don't know if you participated in the vote the past few months or have seen the results of the fan vote um, either. Uh, absolutely not. I. Uh... I've, lo- I've lost track of rock music since uh, 1988, Clark. 1988, my well, cutoff. Probably, probably a good time to check out. But um, I did vote. I voted almost every day because I'm a Todd Rundgren fan. But um, so the results now of, of the fan vote and the fan vote. Number one, Tina Turner. Number two, Fela Kuti. Number three, the Go-Go's. Number four, <laughs> Iron Maiden. Number five, Foo Fighters. Get this. Number six, Carol King. Number seven, Todd Rundgren. And they take the top five, but not necessarily these top five, because last year, Dave Matthews actually won the fan vote. They didn't induct him. Uh, two or three years ago, I forgot what it was. Todd Rundgren was third. Now we kept pushing that vote. He didn't make it either. So this year he said, don't vote for me. The rock and roll. It's not the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What does Fela Kuti have to do with the Rock and Roll? What does Dionne Warwick, another candidate, have to do with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Um, I mean, I realize Fela Kuti is a pioneer of Afrobeat. This is not the Afrobeat Hall of Fame. Um, and Ira, you're, you are a aficionado of good rock and roll music. The Go-Go's ahead of Carol King? I mean, Carol King should be in as a songwriter, at least I, a songwriter. How the hell could Carol King not be in the Hall, uh, Hall of Fame uh, to this point? She, she was writing songs, Clark, 60 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. 60. Absolutely. Um, she, made one of the, she made one of the most famous rock albums of all time, 1971, yep, Tapestry. Tapestry. Yep. Um, that is an outrage. And here we're talking about Chaka Khan and, and, and the Go-Go's <laughs> over here. Um, uh, Clark, Clark, let me throw out a couple of names to you. You ready? Yeah. Uh, George Thorogood and the Destroyers. Not a sniff. Not right. a sniff. Been, right. been going for 40 years. Still out right. there. Right. Uh, Johnny Rivers. Johnny yeah. Rivers, one of my favorites. A great interpreter. A great interpreter. Where's Johnny Rivers? I say screw the Go-Go's. 
bring my people in. And, you know, Cluck, you know what it proves? It, it proves that uh, there, were, there was some pretty good rock and roll way back in the day, Cluck. That, that's yeah. what it proves. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big Todd Rundgren fan, as you know. I mean, just as a producer alone, Ira, just as a producer alone, he did Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell, Hall & Oates. He was the engineer for Stage Fright by the band. Bad Finger, Cheap Trick, Patty Smith, New York Dolls, you name it. He did it, and in 2019, he finished third, didn't make it because Janet Jackson beat him out. Janet Jackson, my word, I don't know. But I'm also I'm also a big fan of Jethro Tull, and Jethro Tull hasn't gotten a sniff either. Anyway, as I said, the winner's not guaranteed a spot. They're going to announce the findings or the results tomorrow. Let's see what happens. Let's move on to something a little more uh reasonable i hope uh, wait a minute also- wait wait a minute mr judge wait a minute i have a trivia question Shoot. you ready yep clock if you get this i'm going to be really impressed all right i believe there are two surviving members two of the inaugural 1986 class that had you know fats domino and elvis right. and chuck berry and little richard i believe there are two can you name even one? Uh, I, the answer is probably going to be no, because I'd say, well, I'd say, <clears throat> I'd say McCartney had to be one of them, but I guess the Beatles no, no, weren't in was, that first. Was not in the first class. Was not. Was um, not. Ooh, two of the um, Dion Demucci. The answers are Jerry Lee Lewis, who okay. nobody thought would uh, survive past fifty, and Don Everly. Oh, Don yeah. Yeah. Everly. Yeah, I have some Everly brother uh, brothers albums. They're great. The harmonies are tremendous. Um, Absolutely. Well, all right. What's else? next? What's next? Yeah, what else what is, is tremendous is something that Ian Glendon has his eye on and has been for a while. Tom Brady is back in the news, Ira, and you should know this. And Ian, of course, does know this because you're in Tampa, the new home of Tom Brady, and because Ian doesn't miss anything that happens to Tom Brady. His first ever touchdown pass, first ever TD pass is up for auction starting Sunday. Now, that pass was a 21-yarder to Terry Glenn on October 21st, 2001, against the then San Diego Chargers. And Ira, I actually was there. I'm not going to use that for I was there, but I I was there. I was there. And Glenn threw the ball into the stands, and a um, season ticket holder caught it, has kept it in a bank vault safe deposit box in a bank vault for 20 years he's now 48 years old this man and decided you know what i'm going to auction it off it's going to start on sunday so ian what's your opening bid oh man that's going to be tough that's going to be tough uh i i I would i would go upwards of about five million dollars and you'll just have to trust me that uh i have it and not ask any follow-up questions after that I got uh, Clark. I got eleven. Better than we are. Clark, I got eleven. I got eleven singles in my billfold here, and uh, (laughs) uh, I I, I think that's outrageous. Uh, You know, Jim Irsay. Jim Irsay might lead the bidding here, Clark. He just might. He might, especially if Tom Brady were to play some rock and roll music. Jim Irsay. Brady, uh, uh, Clark. Brady broke Jim Ursay's heart on, on more than one occasion. You Absolutely. know that. I do know so that. So he says $5 million. I'm thinking more about maybe $250,000 as an opening bid, but yeah. I don't think that's going to be enough, Clark. It won't be. And you're right. If Jim Ursay got involved, it won't be. And $5 million wouldn't be involved or wouldn't be enough either. Uh, by the way, I, I have been in Jim Ursay's office in Indianapolis. 
it's littered with all sorts of rock and roll memorabilia on the walls, including a signed photo of all four Beatles of the Abbey Road cover. Uh, is there anything from the go-go, uh, the go-go's in there, uh, Clark? No go-go's, no fella cootie, no Dion Warwick. No, I'm sorry. Um, but I think <laughs> there might be something from Todd. There might be something from Todd in there. there okay, let's get on to our guest today, guys. Enough of that. Um, and I'm talking about somebody who can talk to us about the pro football, not the rock and roll, but the pro football Hall of Fame, which means we go back to a familiar guest, and that's John Turney, historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal. Now, our full disclosure, I asked John yesterday if he could join us. Didn't hear from him until last night. A correction, until this morning. At 3.38 in the morning, I got a text from him. <laughs> John, what in God's name are you doing up at that hour? <laughs> I'm usually up at that hour, so it's nothing unusual. It's just some of us have a clock that, uh, you know, that, that keeps us up at night. And that's me. Well, John, we'll be taping another show next week at four in the morning. Are you available to join us? Yeah, that wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, let's get on to the issues at hand. Um, I want to talk about seniors. I was on the senior committee of the hall. John, you're an expert on uh, seniors and, of course, the history of pro football. But we've had numerous guests on this program tout Cliff Branch as a senior candidate. And I get it. I mean, he's been, Ira could probably address this more uh, decisively than I can, but he's been involved or been a, a top finisher in those senior conversations. But to me, there are other receivers who are just as worthy. In fact, we had uh, Hall of Fame voter Pete Doherty last week on here um, talking about Sterling Sharp. And Sterling is now a senior candidate, wide receiver for the Packers. But not only Sterling Sharp, John, um, you and I have talked about this before. There are guys like Del Schaffner, Gary Collins, who are all decade performers from the 60s, Charlie Hennigan, the Houston Oilers. So there's a lot of competition at that position. And I'm talking about wide receiver. Where do you stand on branch and who would you push to the front of that pack? Well, stacking the wide receivers is at this point is pretty difficult because you have different factors going for different guys. Cliff Branch has the longevity going for him, and that's has, that garnered him three Super Bowl rings. He was a four-time All-Pro, and that that's pretty good. But then you have Del Schaffner, who did not have the longevity. He got hurt a little bit, and he was a five-time All-Pro and a first-team All-Decade uh, performer. And according to you know our mutual friend T.J. Troop, he probably changed coverage just as much, if not more, than Bob Hayes because he preceded Hayes, and he was extremely fast. And so he drew the double coverage to his side of the field, the, the two-receiver side, and that's how T.J. feels like he impacted the game. Now, Sharp, you know, he, he's got to be one of those that you look at, and he's got no longevity because he got hurt. But then you have to say, is this guy one of those Gale Sayers, Dwight Stevenson, and now uh, Terrell Davis exceptions right. where you have to look at him and see what their peak performance is. Now, it's, it's hard for me to comment on wide receivers because I think there's plenty of them in, and I don't, I'm not excluding anybody, obviously, from, from that. But I think uh, you guys know I wrote about – that there's really a, a deficiency of about a hundred players from the hall of fame that are non-skill players. No, I'm not suggesting it has to be exactly like the field where you have, 
basic skill players and the rest are so-called non-skill players. But really, the quarterbacks, wide receivers, and running backs do have an easier go of it. And maybe that's what makes it so hard to decide about these wide receivers because we've dipped so far into the well that a lot of these guys really are borderline, if you will, because of the various negatives that we've talked about. Whereas maybe it's time to to bring up the the, the non-skill players, the linemen, the linebackers, and the mm-hmm. defensive backs. But then again, if I were to rank them to answer your question, I think I would probably put in Branch because it's really hard to deny him after Pearson and Lynn Swan got in because they were from that dead ball era. And they still put up decent numbers, but they helped their teams win. And so I think that was the key with, with Branch to me. John, one criticism I've heard of Branch, uh, two criticisms actually, I've heard people say, how many Raiders are we going to put in? I mean, we've got how many Raiders from the, the, the 70s team and what do they do? In fact, we've got their coach and their owner in there. What do they do? They won one Super Bowl there. Um, so why are we putting all these guys in when they won just one Super Bowl? The second is that um, he wasn't all decade. And I've heard from some people, some of the older members, that should be a reason to look at others such as a Del Schaffner uh, first. So I guess I would ask you, are those legitimate criticisms? And secondly, what in your mind is the impact, if there is any, of all decade? Well, I, I actually agree with that thought process because, it, to me, it reflects that people are really doing a deep dive into things. Now, the, the all-decade team can also be a little bit funny because you've got to look at first and second team. And from the 70s, 80s, and the, those two decades, you can actually get the votes total. And we know that Harold Carmichael got in. He was second from all-decade, and he got three votes. Right. He was the, the five guy on there. So how do we know that Cliff Branch didn't get two? He probably did, or pretty close. So as far as a tiebreaker, that might be one thing, but then you've got to consider the whole set of honors, the all pros as well, and the rings and the stats. But but I do like using all decade as a, uh, as a very strong measure because it indicates uh, – domination for a long period of time the only time i think there should be exceptions are people that went from mid-decade and they came in in say 1965 and retired in 75 well how can they be all decade sometimes guys were great but just didn't play enough in either decade to garner votes you know john it's funny you mention that because i've used that that line when uh john lynch uh didn't make an all decade team and i i, I said he came you know he's he, he became a starter in 96 and he, he left after 07 and, you know, John Mar- Marshall Falk did not make an all decade team. Same thing, you know, because of uh, the way his career uh, uh, stood. John, I'm going to show my age a little bit. John, you're a young man. You're, you're in your thirties, but uh, I'm not. And um, I'm going to ask you about some AFL guys, uh, John. And there's a guy, you know, I'm an old chiefs fan, John, uh, he doesn't have Hall of Fame numbers, but John, he was a prototype, and prototypes count. And I'm talking about Otis Taylor, who for about four or five years was the guy that you had to stop on the Chiefs. They didn't have much else in terms of Len Dawson targets. They just didn't. They had guys like Gloucester Richardson and Frank Pitts. Uh, John, where, where are you on – Otis Taylor as the six foot three rangy guy that can go deep. And um, 
and and had to be stopped uh, on the big plays. Well, I get it, and I think that's another issue that Clark just kind of touched upon when he was speaking about Cliff Branch. At what point do you stop putting um, Kansas City Chiefs in? Now, I certainly have watched plenty of them. By the way, I'm much older than you think. I'm 57. But (laughs) nonetheless, I've seen a lot of... John, that's young to us. (laughs) (laughs) I just sound young. I've seen plenty of, of Otis Taylor play and I think absolutely he's got the skill set that was absolutely impressive uh, my issue with him is it was another guy who didn't get to play a full career for whatever reason he only played uh, through 1974 I think he might have even he had a, a, a game or two in 1975 but you look at him and you have to ask did he have enough great seasons yes he had the skill set yes he would be a prototype yes he could play today but if, a, if you look at a guy in a pass-happy AFL where guys were getting 12, 1,300 yards a year, and he only has maybe one or two of those, and then in the dead ball era, 1971, he had an MVP-type season, though so you think maybe he had three or four seasons, is that enough when you've got guys like Sterling Sharp and Del Schaffner and Cliff Branch who might have had a few more big seasons? Like I said, it's a real long jam at wide receiver, and uh, – that's why I, I really like to push other positions. But if you ask me if he's a Hall of Famer, I would say I had no problem if they would have put him in. But if you were asking me to stack wide receivers now, I don't know if he would be in my top five. John, I got another guy from the AFL who was more versatile than Otis Taylor. Um, wide receiver and slash kicker. Uh, and, and you're familiar with him, John. And that's... um. Boston's Gino Capaletti, um, heck of a player, Patriots Hall of Fame. His name doesn't come up very much. John, is he kind of overlooked a little bit? Well, I think he, he might be a little bit overlooked, but when uh, Clark asked a few of us to do it at all-time ASL snub list, I looked at him pretty closely, and then I, I said, okay, he's a great contributing player on, on a couple of different levels because he was a receiver and a kicker. So he scored a lot of points because he was also, you know, kicking and then he might score five or six touchdowns. But then I broke it down and said, is he on the level as a receiver, as an Otis Taylor or an Art Powell or a Charlie Hennigan or a Lionel Taylor? And then you look at his kicking and he was a career 52%, 53% or so, 52 9 and I thought, well, that's okay. And I compared what the averages were for the entire league. And he was about one point above average. And so I looked at it and said, this is a good receiver and a good kicker, but he's not great at either one. So I would have to say, you know, maybe the Patriots Hall of Fame is the place for him and the only place for him. John, one more quick one from a more modern standpoint. Um, this guy was a big play guy, John. He averaged 18 yards a catch. That's a big, big number. Uh, Nobody today averages 18 yards a catch. That catches a lot of balls. That's Harold Jackson, also a return guy. Uh, John, to me, he's kind of intriguing. Well, he is. And I've uh, followed his career pretty closely. And 
Clark knows that I've been kind of trying to work on a metric. I'm not a huge metrics guy, but something that measures all the categories for a receiver kind of equally, like the passer reading does. So catches per game, yards per game, touchdowns per game, but also yards per catch because it rewards those guys that played in an era where they were only really used for deep routes, like those 18 yards a catch or 19 yards a catch, which just doesn't happen that much. Now, remember, uh, the leading receiver in terms of receptions, yards, and touchdowns for the 1970s was Harold Jackson, and he was fifth in yards per catch. You could even extend that from 1969 to 81. So what's that, a 12- or 13-year period where he was the NFL's top receiver and yards guy and touchdown guy, and he was fifth in yards per catch. So that would statistically qualify him. But I also, I just watched a full game of him today, and I'm thinking, I just saw him drop a lot of passes. I was familiar with his team. I'm just wondering why he didn't come up with the catches that the Drew Pearsons and the Lynn Swans and the Cliff Branches did. You know, those Ram teams were good, and if they would have gotten just a little offense from 73 to 77, maybe they would have broken through and gotten to a Super Bowl. I'm borderline on him. I mean, if he got in... I would say great, just like I did with Harold Carmichael. But then again, I, I, I don't know if he would be in my top five of senior wide receivers that are in, in my queue. But, of course, as you know, you guys make that decision. We're speaking with historian John Turney on the eye test for two. And, John, um, I want to switch directions here and go to the other side of the ball. And that's linebacker. And I know how you feel about Randy Gratishar. You and I, I think, are in sync on that. Um, we think he should be one of the next seniors if not the next to go in but I want to look at a couple other guys at that position because I hear a lot about them I know a lot about them I saw them play and and they are certainly hall of fame worthy one is Chuck Howley of the Cowboys another one's Maxie Bond um and I saw Maxie Bond with the Eagles earliest career but uh later with the Rams and then uh the Redskins I think at the very end of his career anyway I'm Chuck Howley Super Bowl champ MVP six-time pro bowler Five-time first-team All-Pro, Maxi Bond, nine-time Pro Bowler, seven-time All-Pro, two times as a first-team guy. Why is neither one of these guys getting traction, and would you vouch for either or both of them getting to Canton? Well, Howley, 100%. I think he absolutely should be in. It's very rare to be a five-time first-team All-Pro, which he was. I think three of them, as you mentioned, were consensus. And and a little inside baseball, you guys know that back in the day, and even still today, the, o- the Associated Press was not the first or only all-pro team. There was a players' all-pro team, there was the UPI, and then the writers' all-pro team. It's hard to make all of those, or the majority of those, in a season. So when a player does it four or five times, you, it just doesn't happen that often. And Chuck Howley did that. Not only that, he played both sides. He was a a left-side linebacker, and then uh, when the Cowboys started flopping their outside linebackers, they moved him to the weak side where he would blitz a little bit more. Uh, He just did everything well. He was a better athlete than most of the people around. He he gets knocked probably because he didn't make all decade. I think that's another situation where, you know, there were a couple of guys that were pretty dominant, and they got all the votes, uh, and maybe he should have. There was a guy named Larry Morris who made the 1960s All-Decade team. 
I have to wonder if he wasn't like John Anderson in the 80s, a guy who maybe got one vote because every because of how the vote distribution went. Because I think if you were to look at it in, with 2020 hindsight, looking at everything, I think you would say Chuck Cowley should have been in that spot, or even Maxie Bond. So I would put Chuck Cowley first, and I wouldn't have a problem if they put Maxie Bond in. Um, Film-wise, Cowley sticks out more than Bond, but I think... Bond would be a fine choice. I just think Howley is the stronger candidate. I think he just gets lost in that cowboy backlog, and that killed him. You're probably right. I I just don't understand it with either of those guys. But um, next question is uh, sort of along those lines. As you know, there there were 20 senior finalists for the Centennial class of 2020. Ten were chosen. That means ten were not chosen. Do you think the senior committee of which Ira is a member should just work through the next 10 as we go along to 2022, 2023, 2024, that sort of thing, that they should just simply work through those next 10 who were not chosen and get them in first? I think that's a a good place to start or look at the ones who were there, you know, like maybe that's your starting point, but then as you build their, each of their cases, look at who almost made it in terms of being on the modern list or who was in the top 10, maybe in the modern list. And I think that would sort them out pretty good. Uh, There's, I don't think there were any bad candidates in that 20. There were a couple that I think, or three that maybe got in that I think others should have, but you know, that was up to the, that committee and that, group that made those decisions and anytime you get a group together sometimes a dynamic kind of goes on and then somebody gets in because of a certain I don't know rush at the time or 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 push at the time maybe that's a better word but yeah I think they should you know defer to it but they shouldn't absolutely be bound to it because I think the voters I trust. I've been defending voters for for 20 years because I remember the bad old days. I remember without naming names, just having my jaw drop as a fan, talking to some of the old-time voters and some of the reasons they would ding guys. It was just outrageous how bad it, it could be with just some of them. And as you know, back then, it didn't take very many to hold a guy out. Sometimes a bad voter, an obnoxious voter, would kill guys from the team he was supposed to be representing. And that's a way of it. And I don't want that to happen. (laughs) (laughs) You know, John. Yeah, it wasn't Ira. I know, I know that. John, we've talked (laughs) about this guy, John. But his name keeps coming up, John. His name keeps coming up. I need you to make a definitive statement, Mr. Turney. Definitive. (laughs) Um, Ken Anderson. I I just can't get around this Ken Anderson guy. Um, You talk about passer rating. John, he won four titles. He won four damn passer rating titles in his career. He wasn't necessarily a dinker dunker. The team had success. Uh, shouldn't he be? Shouldn't he be in 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 the top three on anybody's list right now, John? Well, I, if they did, I certainly wouldn't criticize him. He certainly wouldn't be, you know, on, as a his, you know. And from my perspective in a top three, yeah, he had those four great years. But then I also look at uh, some of the years that were so-so. Here's a guy who was a 13-year starter. Uh, seven years, he had more touchdowns than interceptions. Six 
year he had more interceptions than touchdowns. That's and that's not a really you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a great passing era, but but there were guys who could avoid interceptions much better than he did. So in other words, there's a lot of there was probably four or five really good seasons and, and I would even say two or three great seasons especially the year he was the MVP. But, boy, there are a lot of bad seasons. And I think if anybody looked at it year to year, if they cared to do that, they would see what I'm saying. But in the aggregate, if you do his totals and you see where he rates compared to his peers, yeah, his passer rating does look pretty good for that era. In fact, it's, you know, like you said, four times it was the best. I just think, he, you know, if you're an MVP candidate in 1974, 75, then you have four or five years that are just really subpar. Maybe he was hurt too much. Maybe his team fell apart. I don't know. But then he has a couple, three seasons, 81, 82, that were dominant again. So it's kind of like the, the Kurt Warner donut hole in, in some ways. So I'm sorry that was so long-winded, but I just think there's there's reasons that he's probably not in. and. I think the inconsistency is the reason. John, I'm going to ask you about a modern-day guy. I ran it past uh, Ernie Acorsi a few weeks ago. John, um, he's a guy that I – a running back, John, I think you could argue for three or four years, may have been the best back in football. And just that, to me, lifts him into the Hall of Fame conversation – I believe he retired. He was about 30 years old. Uh, Very versatile. I'm talking about Tiki Barber. I don't think people realize at his peak how dominant a player he was, John, but I'm not sure he put enough big years together. Uh, Would you dismiss Tiki Barber out of hand? No, I would not. In fact, I would agree with the Corsi if he said positive things. He's one of those guys that uh, he retired when he was still getting better. Uh, if you do look at his numbers, they are really are pretty amazing in terms of being an all-around guy. He um, ran the ball very well, but he also caught the ball very well. Uh, he was certainly, you'd have to say, a poor man's Damian Thomason or a poor man's Marshall Falk, but that's still pretty darn good. Uh, he played, he played 10 years. I don't know if, you know, that's pretty good, but if you look at those last, you know, I'm looking at it now, one, two, three, four, you know, last seven years, they were great. In the last three years, he averaged what? 1600 yards a year, 1680 and also caught 55 passes. So at his peak, yeah, I think he was somebody who was very much overlooked because I, you know, in being in New York, I don't know why, but his yards from scrimmage are really the telltale sign. You know, his last five years, he averaged over 2,000. How many backs did that? 2,000 yeah. yards every year, year in and year out. Yeah. John, I've got one last question. The Go-Go's are Carol King. Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> uh, I do have one last question. Uh, we're, we're all concerned about leaving seniors behind. Uh, as as seniors ourselves know, we're all concerned about leaving senior candidates behind at Canton. How would you reform the process in 125 words or less? I, I, I don't need you to do a deep dive in this, but 
Um, how would you reform that process to try to get some of these other guys? We talk about Maxi Vaughn, Chuck Howley, um, you know, Otis Taylor, guys like that, Schaffner, Collins, deserving players who may not get a sniff. How would you reform the process so that they do? I was hoping you would ask. I really think they do need to go back at the very minimum to a two seniors one year and then one senior and one contributor, then two seniors again. I think once we get a few contributors in, which I think was the whole purpose of that, and I think we're talking big name type, uh, donor type, uh, big names into the Hall of Fame with that contributor category, as soon as possible, it needs to go to two, one, two, or just plain two every year. That's the way to do it because then we wouldn't have to really consider, well, we can't put another cowboy in because Drew Pearson just got in, or we can't put Cliff Branch in because Tom Flores just got in. And I say we as in fans, I'm not uh, presuming to be, you know, any more than somebody who has an opinion, but I think you get what I'm saying there. They just need to return that extra spot. So in a five-year period, you get three more guys in. And I think that would clear up the backlog and everybody would be happy about it. And nobody would complain because some of the yeah, but because uh, you would still get contributors in. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, John. John Turney, thanks so much for the time. And uh, do us all a favor. Get some sleep, would you please? Get thanks, JC. <laughs> thanks. Talk to you later. You got it. That was historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal. And Ira, as a member of the senior committee, and in all honesty, um, in, in seriousness here, uh, you've got such a daunting task. When we just run through those names, many of those names you'll never even discuss because you can't get to them. There's so many deserving seniors. There's so many, Clark, that even if you take the tourney plan, which you and I fully endorse, absolutely, nobody, nobody can make an argument that there's as many worthy contributors as seniors. You can't make that argument. It's not even close. Right. And I, I think we're close on the contributors to drying up in about five years. I, I really I, do. I do, too. Uh, you know, unless you're going to open it up to assistant coaches and, and, and whatever. So you, you're right, Clark. Uh, it's a daunting uh, it's a daunting task. And um, this one a year, I mean, you'll never get to the end, Clark. You'll never get there. You'll never yeah. get there. Yeah, I'd like to see them merge the contributors with the coaches and then go back to two seniors per year and just keep it at two seniors per year. Maybe then we'd at least make a dent. Anyway, that's going to do it for today. But tune in tomorrow because we're going to sit down with a prominent member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame's class of 2021. That's right here at the eye test for two. We'll see you then.